for those who are visitors, we've been doing this series that I'm really encouraged. Everywhere I go, people are saying, have you read that book, Fruitfulness in the Frontline? We're thinking of doing that. And I've got thinking of doing it. We're at the last one. So I'm encouraged by how much this book has uh, been influencing uh, many churches, uh, not only here, but as I said, when I was over at Elle's Wedding in Inverness, they were uh, looking at the book as well. Uh, the book is Fruitfulness in the Frontline. It's by Mark Green from the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity. And if you're a visitor among us, where we've got to is this is the sixth of the six M's that he has. Just our front lines, what I always am talking about, where we're particles of light tomorrow, wherever that might be, whatever's in your diary or schedule for tomorrow. Um, how can we be, how can we, uh, today we come to what we've been singing about there, tell the world what God has done. We're, we're, we're doing the telling today. Uh, for a quick overview, which has tested me the entire way through the series, as I'm preparing it, I'm thinking, what are the other M's? What are the other M's? Modeling the fruit of the Spirit, making good work, uh, ministering uh, truth and uh, grace and truth, um, being a mouthpiece for grace and truth, molding culture, and today being messengers of the gospel. That's where we are. Today's, it's interesting, has become far more of a, it's almost a workshop than it is a sermon, but bear with me as we go through this. And let me start by asking for your advice. I'm going to tell you my moment of being a messenger of the gospel this week, and you can ask yourself and send me emails or texts or whatever on how we did this. I've been unpacking it all week. Here's the scene. I go in to visit somebody. Now remember while I'm doing this, that this is the theme of today's sermon that I'm thinking about as I'm driving around and doing what I do in the week. So consider that for a moment and then realize that these moments don't happen every time I go to do a visit. So I go to visit somebody and uh, as, I, as I walk towards them, I realize there's somebody with them. Well, actually, that's not the case. I, I spotted that earlier on. So I sit down beside them and their visitor is there and their visitor um, kind of looks at me. This has happened to me all my life, so I'm not kind of hurt by it. Visitor looks at me and um, sees clerical shirt that may be priestly because that's the kind I wear. And I was thinking, who's your man? You can see it. It's as clear as day in their eyes. Who is your man? So I, of course, come in my kind of quirky self and start to do a bit of banter, which causes even more consternation. They're not sure I should be there. By the time I've got a chair and I've sat down beside them, you can see the intrigue coming out. But I think by that stage, and it's taken a little moment or two, I have convinced them that I am authentic in some level. So then it starts. Aye, the church. Uh, yeah, I uh, have to say now, the Trinity is where I really struggle. Interesting start to a friendship, I'm thinking. And once you realize that the Trinity is really near impossible to believe, then the resurrection, that has me completely freaked. Now, where we're coming to in this sermon, as you can tell, is further down the reading that June Pat was reading, um, which tells us, um, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Here's a door that seems to have opened. So what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to tell you what I did, and you can decide after it whether... 
um, that's a good man to be visiting the congregation or not. My immediate reaction was, this is not really a door that's opened. These are doors that have shut. And that actually, I don't need to start with trying, if I could, to explain the Trinity or the resurrection. But even though those weren't the doors, there was something going on in this conversation that I was already alert to. So I didn't go there. I didn't rise to what I thought was literally be it. I said, yeah, I can sympathize with that. Those are really major kind of, the Holy, or the Trinity, I said, there is an incredible mystery that I can understand that it wouldn't be easy for you to believe. So then I do what I, I call, sorry for the football illustration, but yesterday evening I was watching Chelsea struggle and enjoying that, Paul, I'm sorry. And, uh, and uh, what they were trying to do for 90 minutes was just play the ball across here to here and you're asking yourself, what are they doing that for? Well, they're doing that because what they're trying to work out is what is the opposition about here? What am I dealing with here? And if I listen long enough and do this long enough, would there be an opening that I can come in with? And I started to do that in this conversation. Started to find out a little bit about who I was talking to, find out a little bit about their background, and then all the time trying to work around to say, well, you know, yes, they were, it was be it, but yes, they're intrigued to talk about God. And somehow as I'm playing across the defense something happened that gave me the opening and it was 10-10 I don't know where it came from can't tell you now as I'm thinking about it back where the opening came but 10-10 came up in the conversation and I immediately was able to come in with Jesus came to bring his life in all its fullness now you see for me in that conversation right there wrongly that's where I wanted to get to I didn't want to get into debate that it might be difficult to answer at this point in time. My feeling about it was resurrection and trinity can wait. What I need to do here is introduce this person to the Jesus that I believe in and kind of tell them something of why I believe in this Jesus and why I believe he brings me life in all its fullness. It was very casual, seemingly. But it was happening. And you could see the whole entire relationship change. And as I get up to leave, I think I leave with you. And we're still talking in the car park before I leave. It's not perfect, guys, and I'm not setting up as, oh, look what the minister did. I genuinely would like you to come back and help me to unpack it. But it was interesting that I had to unpack it on the week that we're thinking about being messengers of the gospel on the front line. When I moved to Dublin in 1991, Frank Seller, who's um, now in Bloomfield, um, said to me, he said, Steve, you're coming south, and he says, I've got to tell you something right now. In the south, proclamation comes way down the list to relationship. In the sharing of the gospel, you're going to have to be more relational in your sharing of the gospel than being proclamational proclamational in the sharing of your gospel. I don't know whether Frank had memories of me standing in front of the students' union shouting the gospel at people as they walked past, but he was trying to say to me that in this different culture that you're moving into in Dublin, you're going to have to make really hard work 
at relating and being more personal in your evangelism than proclamational. I would say 23 years later in Northern Ireland, we're in the same place. Evangelism is much more relational. I'm not knocking the big event. I love those opportunities. But when we find those opportunities, a lot of the time we find ourselves speaking to 10,000 or 9,999 Christians and maybe three that you're proclaiming something to. Jesus was very relational. Zacchaeus. You walk in and who is Zacchaeus? He's up that tree. And what does Jesus say to him? Zacchaeus, I tell you what, climb further up the tree and you'll find a sign there that says eternity where. Think about that big lad. I'm off here to have lunch with somebody. No, he says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to have dinner with you. We're going to be relational about this. This is going to be one-to-one. I remember Trevor Knight from Young Life speaking at one of our preterms at Queen CU. And he said something I've never forgotten. He said, there's not one person we know by name in the New Testament that didn't come to faith on a personal relationship evangelism. Many people came to faith at Pentecost and other times when the apostles preached. But the ones we know about, the ones who are named personally, it seems Trevor Knight thinks they all came through something personal. Which takes evangelism off the likes of me and puts evangelism onto the likes of us. And of course we start with negative equity. Mark Green in his book says, we would all rather go to the dentist than share our faith with somebody. And it's probably true. To the point that if somebody even said to you, tell me about Jesus, you would say, did you see the fall last night? And we wouldn't be thinking theologically about the fall. We are wary about it because there is something that has gone on in our culture and our world that makes it something that's almost like socially unacceptable. And in some ways, we've got to start by maybe smashing some of the stereotypes and the caricatures. Maybe my friend that I met was thinking that personal evangelism was something that started with deep theological debates rather than just giving a reason for what we believe. Nathan, we thought about last week, or the last time I preached, ambushing David, thinking to himself as he played the ball across the defense, how am I going to get this message through to David? And being creative about how he would go about that and getting his message through in the way that he knew David would hear it. Somebody came to do some teaching to uh, Queen's CU mission uh, for a mission one year, and they said, how are people going to come to faith and the answer was we need to preach to them and he said well no that's not true we need to have them hear us there's a difference between us preaching and speaking the faith and speaking it in a way that people hear the faith so the intrigue of the burning bush sometimes in our conversation needs to be there when I said to our friend I think I can empathize and sympathize with those struggles. That's not what he was thinking I was going to do. He thought as a minister I was going to immediately tell him that he was wrong, that I was right, and that I could explain it to him. But maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe by just being softer, I got his intrigue 
And maybe when I brought Jesus into the conversation, he listened better. Here's a few things we need to think about. Be in the right place where people are. We've been very good at withdrawing ourselves from the places that people are. There's a lot of people in Belfast who want to talk and there's nobody there to listen. There's a lot of people in Belfast living in very dark places who want light, but the light's actually not around them. Not to embarrass him, but Chris Wilson, Monday night, Madden's open mic, spending intentionally a number of hours in an open mic in Belfast so that he might have the opportunity to be incarnational and just be in Jesus amongst that kind of singer-songwriter person. Committed to it. Given time to it. Prayerfully intentional about it. What sort of places could we find ourselves? What sort of places are bereft of listeners, bereft of light in Belfast, that maybe, like Mary, we might be called to be in. What about your front line? Are there places in that front line tomorrow? Conversations that are happening on that front line. People who maybe you haven't connected with yet in the area of that front line that you're being called to. Don't contrive. It's a word I use for many areas of my life, but don't contrive. Arthur Blessed inspired me at time. You remember Arthur, he had the big cross and he walked around Belfast and he did all kinds of exciting things. When I came to faith, I had a record. Final, Arthur Blessed. And he told all these stories. And I, I'm not sure about the answer, he, he, or about how he went about it. He used to say if he was on a plane and they said, and, and the wee stewardess would say, in the case of emergency, he would shout, pray! And she would say, sorry, sir, could you just be quiet for a moment? He says, if we're dropping out of there at 30,000 feet, love, you can give me anything you like, but I'm going to go for prayer. Or when somebody said at the airport, what is your final destination, sir? He would say, heaven. (laughs) Or he's over his coffee with the newspaper and somebody says, who won last night? And he said, Jesus won. The devil had me for a long time, but in the end, Jesus won. Now, they're humorous and there are certain personalities that can get away with it. But most of us can't. So don't contrive those openings. I picked out um, a fiver to give to Jasmine during the week. And on it was written right across it, Jesus saves. I thought, is somebody trying to say something to me? Or have we become so distant in our evangelism that we're defacing in order to share our message? Don't contrive. And the way not to contrive is the next point. Listen to people. Now, it's interesting because Tom Wilson came up with this when we were having a, a presbytery subcommittee meeting recently, and Mark Green has brought it into his book. David Augsburger, who's the professor of pastoral care at Fuller Theological Seminary, has said this. The only thing you hear from this morning's sermon is this next sentence. Please hear it and please listen to it because I need to hear it and listen to it. Here's what Augsburger has said that Mark Green and Tom Wilson have used in different contexts. Being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are indistinguishable. Wow. Being heard 
is so close to being loved that for the average person they are indistinguishable. Isn't that an incredible quotation? And how well do we listen? Every time we go out to visit, the honorary president of the PWA will say to me as we get out in the car, listen. When we listen, we love. Zacchaeus, come down out of that tree. I'm going to go and have dinner with you. I'm going to listen. Nobody's listened to you for years. I'm going to listen. The listening in itself is a proclamation of the gospel. But as we listen, then we need to be discerning. We don't need to go in with our formulas, and we'll come to that in a moment. We need to listen. What are the fault lines in this person's life? What are the fault lines in the relationships that they have? Where are they in their lives at this moment in time? Where are they if I should think of introducing prayer or Jesus or something spiritual? Are they ready for that? Or is that for the next time and this time? Literally all I have to do is listen. But get another opportunity. Listening to the response. Not listening so that the answer we had before they spoke can come into play. Listening so that the answer we give might not be what we thought the answer we were going to give before they started speaking. Listening. Discerning. Seeking that God would help you to discern. Then listening to cultural opportunities. Mark Green takes a, a kind of a role in this that I first came across with CUBIT. CUBIT was a magazine that came out when I was uh, a university student and it was very, very influential. There were some amazing articles in CUBIT and um, it, uh, sadly, financially, it became uh, impossible to keep going. But I would say uh, in my early years in Christian Union that that magazine just helped me to shape a lot of worldviews. And in that magazine once, and Mark Green takes it up there, somebody said these words, every movie you see, every TV program you watch, every book that you read, every play that you go to, every song that you hear is an opportunity for sharing your faith. Think about it in the front line tomorrow, or maybe last week, the fall. Now there's a conversation starter. And I don't only mean the first conversation is, was that in Rugby Road? I think that was the house beside. That was Methody Chapel that they were doing that scene outside. How many Fitzers are in this series compared to the last one? I mean something more than that. That's dark. What's going on in that? People will talk about the script. People will talk about the fear. But people might also talk about, well, what's going on in our world that could cause some of that? Why is it called The Fall? Every movie, every book, Every album. Paul in Athens. Let's read. Let's listen to the culture. Let's be ready to see the culture as a way that we can talk about what we believe and what our worldview is. Everybody else will do it. If you have Marxists in the office and they're passionate about it, you will see some of that come out. If you have atheists in the office and they're passionate about it, they will be evangelistic about their atheism. So let's get away from that fear of the dentist idea of evangelism and just be ready to give a reason for the hope that's within us let's look at that verse 
Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Now, in the situation that Peter's in here, we're under a little bit of uh, grief. There's a little bit of persecution going on. There's a little bit of suffering going on for the Christians. And maybe for a long time, that wasn't relevant. But maybe in your front line at this moment in time, you feel that. You feel that if you shared your Christian faith, that there might be a stigma to that as much as there is for those who have HIV AIDS. You might actually think that if you started to share your faith where you are, that you would be ostracized or it would be distanced or that people might not be prepared to speak to you. But let's just break quickly um, uh, this verse up. First of all, the hope is what starts it. Be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. The first thing it seems to me in this verse is that it's a response to the way we've been living that gets a question asked to us. That's why messenger of the gospel is the sixth M and not the first M. Fruitful in the front line. Surely the first thing we've got to do is share our faith. Well, actually, for green, it's the sixth thing we have to do because the modeling of the fruit of the Spirit, the making good work amongst others, the ministering grace to others, the molding of a different culture and the mouthpiece for truth and justice gets us into a situation where people say, you see the way you're living. Why do you do that? Why do you think that? What drives you to do that? And there's the moment that the hope within us has caused the question so that we give an answer. An answer. Most of Jesus' evangelism was done from questions. How do I inherit eternal life? Nicodemus, I know that the things you're doing should just... Who is my neighbor? Think about all the times when Jesus' life caused the reaction that asked the question that he then answered. Let others set the agenda. That gives you the right to walk in. And then it's the hope that's within you. I've done all kinds of evangelism courses and all of them probably have helped me in situations like this week when somebody comes at me a wee bit and I get involved in that kind of thing. But never are the formulas that are going to be the answer to what we're talking about when we want to share the good news that is within us and when we're messengers of the gospel. Don't bring the formula into play no matter what. It's about the reason you have And I suppose that's where I head unconsciously this week. I'm not going to answer about the Trinity. I'm not going to answer about resurrection. But I am going to say why I think Jesus' life, death and resurrection, as I was able to say, are the way that we can have life in all its fullness. It's not a formula. There will be moments of apologetic, but it's not initially that. Why do you live that way? Why do you think that way? What would you do and why? As I was thinking this week, and Mark Green gives many people that he knows and some of the ways that they've evangelized, and I have to say one or two of them I wasn't quite sure about, but there was many of them that were very helpful. I started to think again about an example of someone who maybe does this very naturally and very ably. And I know what you're going to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. I read two books about you two just after mine came out. And I was amazed at both of them written by completely different people. One of them was a French journalist who was very obviously agnostic and atheist and was really probing at Bono's faith. And the other was a guy who grew up 
beside him in school. He now writes for the Daily Telegraph. But this guy who grew up beside him in school wanted to be the biggest rock star that ever lived. Now that's difficult to live with. I wanted to be the biggest rock star that ever lived. But I didn't sit beside in school the guy who became the biggest rock star that ever lived. That can be difficult to deal with. And that was coming across in the book, it had to be said. But both of the books at different places say exactly the same thing to Bono and about Bono. Asias, the French journalist, says to him at one stage, Why is it? That every time I ask you a question, you answer it with the scriptures. And McCormick said that he said to him at one stage, why is it, Bono, that everything comes back to Jesus? You read in these books how he asked Gorbachev, do you believe in God? Or how another rock star, Billy Corgan, for those who are anoraks, was asked what you do at Bono's Christmas party and he said well I don't really know I sat on the stairs talking to him about Jesus all night or Noel Gallagher from Oasis who talked about how after having asked this was how the conversation came and and interestingly in this one my book was at the publisher and I knew that Bono was reading a lot of Philip Yancey and giving a lot of Philip Yancey I knew that Bono had given Philip Yancey books to Noel Gallagher, but I couldn't put it in the book because it was private information. I'd heard it from friends. It hadn't been public. The book goes to the publisher for the final pressing on a Friday afternoon. Saturday morning, my friend emails me and says, have you read today's Guardian supplement? I said, no, it was about uh, Oasis and I wasn't interested, so I didn't buy it. He said, I think you should. So halfway through this, this is just the conversation. I'm just thinking about this now in the light of the sermon. Noel Gallagher says in this interview, At one stage I said to Bono, Bono, you're a rock star and you pray. Explain that to me. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. You're a rock star and you pray. Explain that to me. So he said, after a lot of conversations over the next while with Bono, I finally got in the post two books, What's So Amazing About Grace and Searching for the Invisible God by a guy called Philip Yancey. And the thing that amazed me about those books were not the books that were sent, that those books were sent between the death of Bono's father and the funeral. Bono was thinking about me between the death of his father and the funeral. Why would a rock star annoy the journalist or the friend if he is? Seems simple to me. The simple thing for me is that it's the obsession of his life, this Jesus in Scripture. Therefore, it's so much a part of his life that it would be hard to keep out of the conversation. No matter how other people think of him. I'm a minister. So when somebody asks me that as I go to visit, they're probably asking the question to think, now that's his job and I expect him to answer. What about where you are on the front line tomorrow? As we've said, is it going to be awkward? If you're a rock star, how much more awkward is it? And is Jesus so much a part of the fabric of our lives? That actually it comes out not in contrived ways. It comes out because actually that's the very essence of who we are.
Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this series. And I pray, Lord, that as we go away and think about these last number of weeks, that we might ask ourselves, are we modeling the fruit of the Spirit on our front lines? Are we modeling them in such a way that people are going to ask, why do you do that? Why do you live that way? How can you be so gracious and patient and forgiving? Lord, we pray that we will do what we do, whether in work or in volunteering or in caring or being a father and mother or grandmother or grandfather or husband and wife or neighbor or friend, that we would do the vocation we have as humans to such a way that people would be intrigued and ask us. We pray that we would minister grace to those who need it and we're thinking this morning about those who live with HIV AIDS. That we would minister grace around us in such a way that people would say, why are you doing that? What are you getting out of it? We pray that we would be those who would mold and remold the cultures around us in the smallest cultures of our living room, our kitchen, to the wider cultures of our neighborhood, to our city, to our country, to our world, in such a way that people would ask, what is it you're doing? We pray that we would be so much a mouthpiece for justice that people would ask us where we find justice and truth. And we pray that as we live in those ways, that therefore we would be ready when people ask us to give a reason for the faith that was within us. May we not see our faith, our members of the community of God, our attendance at church, as like going to a golf club or a yacht club or any other kind of club or hobby. May it be such a part of who we are that it will naturally become part of our conversations and that we will listen, that we will be listeners, that we will be in the places where listening is needed. And then with the discernment of your spirit, we will have gentle, respectful and gracious answers to share with others the reason for the hope that makes us sing. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.